Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. I'm laughing because I have to deal with family members walking into my podcast in our podcast room because the kids do not go to school now. So listen, a break from our normal coronavirus um, you know, rigmarole that we've been carrying on the podcast for the last two weeks. I have a very special guest. One of the reasons I think Robert Johnson is so special is because without knowing it, I think he's lived by the mantra of not trying to be famous himself, but make the results that he gets for others, other people famous, or the Charlie Munger quote, make your work famous. And that's what he's really done a great job at. Rob, in case you've never heard from him or heard of him, is one of the most successful agents in, the, in not just the country, but in the whole world. I'm going to brag for him because he won't do it himself. Um, selling consistently well over $100 million to real estate per year. Selling in one of the most, I'd say, interesting markets on, on planet Earth. He's selling in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is an, just probably one of the original um, posh enclaves, to use a British word, or you know, high-end neighborhood in, in the country. And I'm trying to be, relate to your Britishness, Rob. You work with me here. And the, Thank you. And uh, the you're, you're doing very well. I, I don't want to interrupt. Thank you. The fact, oh, you like the compliment part, though, don't you? And the fact is, is that they have been in a distinct uh, buyer's market for a long period of time. And I thought it would be fantastic to have Rob on so he can tell you exactly what he's doing and has been doing all the while the rest of the world is in, these, in a crazy seller's market. He's been in a buyer's market work, working with some of those sophisticated, intelligent, uh, financially well-off folks, um, again, on the entire country, if not the world, and in a distinct buyer's market, having to have regular conversations with them about pricing their houses to sell in this market. And this is where the whole world is, and Rob's been there for quite a few years now. So Rob, without any further delay, and listeners without any further delay, my good friend and coaching client, Robert Johnson. Thank you, Tim. Uh, thanks for having You're me welcome. on. You're welcome. That's it? You're welcome. Well, uh, thank you for bragging for me for a start. Uh, I I think being being a a top producer in my town and state, I would stop at. But if you want to make it global, then uh, thank you. I'll take the compliment. Why not? But I'm sure it's true. What was your total volume last year? 130-something million? Yes, um, 130. So I've got two – I have two – I won't say girls, uh, two ladies working – for me is um assistant in assistant roles but it's it's not a team i don't run a team it's more um it's it's more a individual uh brand well so let's talk about that let's start out at the gates and that's a common element amongst anybody you listen to jade mills interview we did those on the west coast know who she is and all these other mega producing agents they don't have teams for the most part because of why rob why is it that when you're selling ultra luxury and luxury a team is not necessarily something you want to have as a marketing play I think if you when people start looking at it initially, I think it, it it's 
it's a very attractive proposition, but as soon as you dig into the weeds a little bit, you realize that in high-end markets, most people are wanting part of you in the process, whether they're a buyer or a seller. Um, so you're, um, you, you tend to dilute your service if you have a team working for you. It also creates more, in some ways, creates more administrative um, obligation on you, I, um, and it, it causes more disappointment with clients. People feel like they're being... Um, second fiddle if there's a if there's a whole entourage of agents working for you if you're running your branding uh, based around a, um, a certain um, commitment to them then they want you they don't want other people um, and you do so the, what do you say to people like if you're there are a couple people or I think there's one lady in your community that actually markets a team and um, so why do sellers why would sellers choose like you over her, what would be a specific thing that you'd say if we might even dare say, do you have a script that you'd use when trying to have the, have the seller understand why working with you is better than working with a team? I think the, the way that you pivot on it is by saying that you're the, the, the one or two or three people that uh, may end up uh, helping facilitate the transaction enable the individual that you want working on the um, on the on the property to be that key person. So it, it's um, it's a delegation of tasks um, um, and a people working for you rather than just spreading um, spreading it across a uh, spreading it across a team. So in other words, Mr. Seller, uh, just it's important that you understand that when you work with me, you're working with me. You're working directly with me. That's not to say I don't have staff working with me that I'm going to delegate. The more administrative task to that way I can always be focused on making sure your house gets sold something along those lines exactly and 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 to um, that the real that the selling is done by the uh, by the agent that they want um, to be working for them um, and, it, and it also helps um, the people that are helping that person that uh, the key person in the group um, makes um, communication a lot easier between the clients. One, one of the things that a lot of clients are, um, the, the, the biggest question that people have is, well, are you too busy? And that segues into explaining to them that, that that's, what, that's exactly what the people working with you help, um, um, help iron out. So I would say 90% of the um, listings that I take where I'm second, third, or even fourth in this market, um, as an agent, the number one complaint, as then this is, this is probably the same across all price points and across the country, is communication. So if you can explain that people working for you will improve that situation, they'll, they'll be aware of what's going on in the market, what's transacting around their location and their price point, um, and they'll have regular and timely updates on that and where their property's been featured on a weekly basis. It sounds really simple. Um, but people aren't used to having that in a in a scheduled um, in a scheduled manner. So what I'm hearing you say is oftentimes you're what, what percent of your listings do you think had been listed prior? Like in other words, were expired? What I off the top of my head, I actually mm. don't even know the answer to that question. Do you? It's not that many. No, anymore. I would guess. No, I would say less. I would say um, I would say um, a quarter to a third. Right, and now you're being called, and so. Here's what's interesting. You've gone from essentially your. When did you set the goal of being the number one agent in Connecticut? When was that original? Was it four or five years ago? Um, yeah, it's about that. Yeah, and in that time, Rob's gone from essentially a, a very successful business person 
and real estate professional to essentially becoming the top agent in one of, I think, probably one of the toughest markets in the country. What have you done to make that happen? Like if someone, I know people ask you that question, like looking for a silver bullet or looking for a shortcut. How do you communicate to them really what the, really it's been brutal as far as the amount of work and the learning curve that you've had to kind of, you know, forge over the last few years. What would have been the hardest thing looking back over the last you know, few years you've had to learn? Hardest maybe two or three well, things. I mean, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that I learned this, but I expected it going in, that giving a commitment a time-wise to, um, to building your business um, is um, – there are other things in your life sometimes that have to play second fiddle to that, and that can cause um, – you know, that, that can create stresses of, uh, of its own, but you, uh, which basically boils down to me saying you, you, it's a lot of work. See, and you have to be prepared to put that in. I, I, I think that's the main, um, the main feature. Um, it's an, I, I always say this is a great business to be in because the barriers to entry are zero. It's also the worst business to be in because the barriers to entry are zero. But if you're willing to put the work in um, and you're, you have the ability to give it, give it the time that it needs, that's, uh, that's huge. Um, and then tr- treating your business like a business, not not a hobby. Um, slowly, and I don't. By this, I don't mean starting on day one and giving Trulia and Zillow five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month to become the um, to, to to be given a lot of leads. I don't mean that, but you need to. Um, when I say the next thing, but you need to be able to invest in your um, in your business in smart ways. Um, and a lot of agents don't do that. If you can do just those two things, you'll be ahead of the vast majority of agents in the country. What would have been the hardest things you've had to learn how to do, though? Like, for example, looking back, because I can, I can certainly remember some things. You never really – the nice thing about you, Rob, is you don't screw around and you say you're going to do something. Generally speaking, you implement it right away. But what have been the hardest things that if you could have told like the Rob from five years ago, learn this first or, you know, don't take so long to get in an action on this particular thing. What would, what would those things have been? Or is there one thing that stands out? Um, <laughs> this is when people listening know that you haven't given me the questions before, <laughs> before the call. So th- um thinking, I would say being able to um, communicate succinctly and directly with people um, that you're that are outside of your sphere of influence is the hardest thing and still continues to be the hardest thing that I do that's very important that you said that so your business is probably is 80% center of influence in past clients do you think that's about right or is it even more Mm, um, yeah I'd say that that was that was fair Okay, and you're saying, and I hope everyone's hearing what he's saying, one of the most successful agents that there has ever been, and he's saying one of the biggest challenges he has, he has is actually, um, I don't know, even know how to phrase it, but working with folks that aren't an immediate referral or center of influence to past client. Why is, what's the biggest difference? It seems like it's obvious, but in your words, in your mind, why is that more challenging for you? I think – and this change, this varies for everyone's personality, but for, for me and in the market that I'm in, that I think there's a very fine line um, between um, being perceived as an ambulance chaser and being a, a proactive lead follow, um, following up on leads proactively. And this is a conversation you and I have had for years. Um, you, and for the avoidance of doubt, Tim is pushing me to be more like this on a weekly basis, and I, and I struggle with it, and I still do. Um, the um, 
but being getting out there and um, and not being sh- not being um, well, I think is, is it your term? Not being a secret agent is is how is how it initially starts, and then taking it on from there. Right, and I think it's important, and I love the fact that you're so honest about that. So let's pivot and let's talk about what is happening in Greenwich, Connecticut, during uh, you know the coronavirus during this. Uh, you're right in the shadow of New York City, and right. you know the financial. It's really interesting. You're right in the epicenter. Yeah, tell me about it. So. And this changes on a daily basis, like everyone's situation. Different listeners in different parts of the country are at different points of the curve on, on the timing for this. But as everyone probably knows, Washington and New York City have probably been two of the main centers of, um, of where corona has, has kind of hit the hardest, I would say. Um, New York City is our biggest buyer base. Um, as you said at the beginning of the show, we've had a buyer's market and for a number of years now, it really didn't, a lot of parts of town didn't properly recover since the 08-09 financial crisis. Uh, some parts of the town did, some didn't. Um, but what we're seeing now is um, a, um, a flood of inquiry for people looking at short-term rentals in the last, in the last week to two weeks. Um, always a difficult product to find in, a, in, a, um, in an affluent market because a lot of Basically, a lot of wealthy people don't want to rent their houses out. Um, so there's always a lot of demand for summer rentals at this time of year, which we can't, um, which we can't keep up with. Um, we can't really satisfy in, in a normal year. In this year, it's, it's different because it's get me out of New York. I need, I can't, I'm not even allowed to go to my office. What can you get me today uh, for two or three months? And the price points on that might be 10000 a month, but I've had conversations with people um, that were willing to spend up to Seventy-five to one hundred thousand dollars a month to to get themselves out of New York City. Um, interestingly, you know, as I said, it's evolving day by day. But the market, the MLS, has just started to respond with anecdotal transactions of um, of very high prices to be paid for these type of rentals from about a week ago. And and, I, and in the last few days, even I've seen a lot of things come on which uh, for short-term rent, which would have never have been listed. Um, in you know up until about a week ago, um, so that's one thing. The second thing is moving forward. How do you, how do we capitalize on that, and and how do we are we going to see an inf, um, a, a taste change of people that have been living in urban areas, New York City for us especially, where that convenience and that um, young families staying in urban areas for longer is that going to change a little bit in the in this year and and lead to a um, a suburban shift, even if it's slight, um, then that is going to um, massively positively affect our market. If in the five to ten million dollar range, for example, if we even had an extra fifty to hundred buyers in our town of seventy-five thousand people, that will be significant. Um, so, seeing how that story pans out is going to be really um, a really interesting process, and obviously the dust is going to have to settle on this story for that to, to pan out a little bit. Um, showings are difficult at the moment, and people are looking, people are prioritizing um, different things for now. But I, I, I see it changing a little bit, and I, and I see people, not, um, I see it affecting different price points differently. Um, that on the lower end, um, I think people's savings are going to have taken a little bit of a, um, a short-term. Um, 
negative you know impact with the stock market are those guys going to be able to liquidate um, enough money for a 20 percent deposit maybe not um, on the lux on the higher end on the luxury end I, I think we're going to see a little pickup on the um, on the high end but you know if we're having this conversation in December I'd like to think so but we'll you know we'll see so you said a whole bunch of stuff there that was interesting I'm going to drill down so number one, you said because of the fact that people are wanting to get the hell out of New York, which is definitely happening. We live down in Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico actually closed the airports. Like you can't even fly into Puerto Rico. I know Florida basically was trying to do the same thing because all the people fleeing New York. So you're saying they're also trying to flee to Greenwich in order to obviously escape the pandemic. Um, and, and as a result of that, the market's reacting and the leases are going through the roof. And did I hear you say that properties that wouldn't have otherwise been for lease are coming for release just because the sellers are trying to obviously make the most of the opportunity. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, the, the prices out there are, are, are suddenly the market's. I think going to find a little bit more of an equilibrium in the next week as this story pans out and as the new inventory comes on very quickly. I mean, I'm putting a couple of things on on short notice next week for for exactly that reason. Um, I think on the high end, some people. Um, so Greenwich, is, Greenwich or other suburban areas in Westchester and New York or in, you know, further up the line in, in Fairfield County in, in Connecticut will be um, beneficiaries of this. It's, not, it's obviously not just Greenwich, but um, you'll see a situation where a lot of wealthy um, – I, I have – I have wealthy clients in Greenwich that have other houses that feel like they need to get out of Greenwich and go to their places that are secondary. So that could be up in Nantucket or it could be in Martha's Vineyard or the Hamptons. Um, New Yorkers are, are more willing to there's a lot of New Yorkers that have second homes as well. They're, they, they'll probably be camped out at those in the, in the short term. And there are plenty of stories in the press about uh, the pressure that's being put on those small high-end, you know, second home communities with a sudden influx of, um, of people from Philly and New York and, and, in the, and the places on the eastern seaboard. Do you think it's possible, Rob, that the housing trend, like I know one of the reasons that um, Greenwich has been in a distinct buyer's market for so long is because the housing trend has been to – I guess, move to New York City, in essence, or move to a different state altogether to escape the taxes. Do you think that this pandemic could actually have a positive effect in terms of changing housing trends and having people maybe think about Greenwich as their new permanent home opposed to something else? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it will, as as I said, partly because we're a small enough town where even a even a reasonably small um, influx of buyers is going to um, positively affect our market. But um, I think people in time of crisis, and I think for very different reasons, obviously the same thing happened in after 9-11. Obviously, there was a perceived threat of uh, – there was, there was a, um, a perceived terrorist threat there. So it's very different. This is, a, this is for health reasons. But I think the, the, the end result may be, may be similar, where people will question, um, at least in the short term, where, where they live and what they're trying to achieve in their primary residence. Um, I think at the very least, um, across luxury markets, I think you'll see people reinvesting into their primary residences and taking after spending a, um, a, a more time there in the, in the, you know, the, uh, in the last few weeks and maybe for the next couple of months. I think they'll see um, I, I think you'll see increase in renovations. I think you'll see people wanting to have like almost have like a nesting reaction to and, and wanting like a safety net in their primary residence, which they haven't had, which they haven't had for a while. And I think um, having a little bit more space around them um, and um, and and a, and a feeling of of, um, of security is going to be is going to make the suburbs a little bit more attractive. 
It totally makes sense because there's a lot of people. I mean, I canceled our vacation plans. We were going to go to Europe, and I know a lot of other people are canceling vacation plans too. There's, you know, that. So there's a lot of people that are going to be doing staycations and elaborate versions of. Yeah, so it totally makes sense that they'll be reinvesting in their houses. It'll be interesting to see if you're right about that trend. So you said something else that kind of um, was interesting. One, one, one small that, thing. Sorry, one small yeah, thing going no back to that. I, I think it was. I can't remember who I was talking to yesterday, but they were at a paint store, um, and my my friend was saying, "Well, you know, have, we feel sorry for you guys. Are you hanging in there?" And they said, "Yeah, well, our um, the amount of people that are the the painters that are coming in buying paint has gone down a little bit because they're you know they're struggling with their orders, but they've been uh, they were under siege with um, with end users and customers coming in and taking samples and wanting to repaint their house. They've been sat in their house for a couple of weeks looking at walls and and and, and uh, with and they're 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 climbing up the walls looking for jobs to do. And these, these, uh, the paint store was uh, was absolutely overrun. So anyway. I can understand that. I'm, I'm I'm actually looking forward to washing our windows tomorrow because I'm looking for something to do other than basically being on podcasts all day. Um, so here's something else. I, I think listeners would be quite fascinated to know this that don't deal in um, you know luxury and ultra luxury like you do. The percent of your buyers or percent of, of mortgages that are you know can you talk about that? Like how many of the folks that you deal with will go and get a mortgage when they could pay cash or just give us give us some color on that? I think that would be fascinating to most people. I think it, it, it varies a lot across the price point. For me, I would say that up to in my market, up to about two, up to about two and a half to three million, there's a sensitivity on um, to mortgage contingencies and having to finance properties. As I say, everyone's different, but I would say that there's kind of a watershed around two and a half to three million, where above that point, it becomes more of an allocation of resources and a, and a view on interest rates and more discretionary whether they take financing or how they take financing. Below, um, below two and a half and definitely below two, it's, it's a necessity um, that, they, that they need the mortgage contingency. So it's, it's different. I mean, my, my range of transactions last year was 900,000 to 48 million. So it covers a very large spectrum, even in a, in a smallish or a largish town. Um, so, you know, I cover, I'm covering all the bases, and I would say that's where the cutoff is. I think the problem that um, – and I'm submitting an offer after this call, so I've literally just had this conversation with, the, with my client. The problem is there's two, there's two issues at the moment. One, interest rates are obviously nearly zero, negative yesterday on the news for certain things. Um, are mortgage rates going to reflect that right now? No, they're not because the, the banks are, are, are jammed up. Um, so they're not going to be, people aren't going to be able to take advantage of the rates that they think they are in the short term. Um, and, they're also, and they also may need longer to get, um, you know, where we'd normally presume 30 days was, um, was, was fine to, to be approved um, by, your, by your lender. Um, people may have to have a little bit more flexibility on going up to 45 days for that. So th th those are the two, two kind of financing um, things I'm seeing in the last week or two. Yeah, well, I'm glad you told me that you had to go and sell a house. That's a good maybe way to, for us to trail off for your day because <laughs> that definitely has to take priority in this marketplace because otherwise I would have just keep on, kept on asking you questions. Um, so if, I'm wondering, like, as far as when does – at what point does someone just say, I don't care? Like the normal conversation is if the interest rate's so low that you can put your cash to work doing other things, you know, this whole economics one-on-one -on -one conversation. At, how, at what point do, does everyone just, in your opinion, because you're obviously rubbing elbows and you, hell, you are one of these people, 
do, does everyone just say the rates are so low it doesn't make sense not to borrow? Is there a, is there a point with that, or is it all psychology? I think it's psychology, and it's also obviously that's the desire. That's the desire from the from one of the desires from a government for lowering interest rates. But I would say, um, and it's often a perception that my sellers might have with every time there's a significant rate reduction. It's like, well, we we have to look great now because money's so cheap, and it's not that simple um, because. If you're asking a, buyer, a, a pretty sophisticated buyer base to invest in your community, and that's what they're considering doing, if, if they perceive that, um, that absolute numbers and prices for, for that uh, housing market are going to drop 10% or 20% in the next two years, um, then why would they? It doesn't matter whether you're borrowing money at zero. You're still going to lose money. So that, that's the, it depends on how you look at it. Um, is, is money cheap? Yeah, absolutely. But it has been for quite a while in, historical, um, in a historical scenario. But if, if the perception is that they're going to be buying a $4 million house that's worth $3 million in five years' time, it's still not going to, it's still not going to incentivize them to buy that asset. Well, you said this, so I was going to let you go, but now I'm going to ask you a question because we talked about this on our coaching calls before. Why would somebody buy a house where they thought with almost 100% certainty that it was going to be worth less in a year or two than it is now? Why would somebody still transact? Because obviously they do, knowing that that's highly likely going to be the result. Well, I think most people – that. Their initial purchase needs to, and again, this is a very personal uh, decision, and so a lot of it depends on the price point. You're, um, if you're a $2 million buyer in this market, then you, you're, you're more likely to be making a move on a need to move to the area. So you're, you're, being, um, you're, you're moving with work. You need an extra bedroom for the kids. So that type of buyer is going to buy the best thing that they can within a 90-day period of time at that time, knowing that it's a soft market, they're going to be cognizant of getting the best deal that they can to give themselves a buffer if they if they do think the market's going to drop. And not everyone does. That's what makes the market. Um, and above that, um, it's similar to similar to the cutoff on um, interest um, rates and dependency on a mortgage. I'd say above three million and above four million, you have uh, that purchase tends to be also be by that group of people more discretionary. So. By that I mean they they don't have to move. They it, it's a choice rather than a need. So that comes into play as well. Um, and again, they're they're going to want to have a, um, a a purchase that they think gives them a little bit of a buffer on the downside. Um, they can also justify it, and we've talked about this on a, on a uh, show before. They can also justify it. It's like you know what? If I lose ten percent uh, with rates so low. Um, is that going to be cheaper than me renting an equivalent house for a couple of years as well? So that's enough. It, it, it depends on how someone's thinking about it. Yeah, and that's what, and it's a lifestyle choice too. At the end of the day, they need some place to live, um, and that's mm-hmm. and, and, and that the most, yeah. Yeah, that 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 no, need ahead. to have a roof over your head uh, price is could be seven hundred and fifty thousand for one person, and for another person it could be five million. They might have spent ten million in the in in a couple of years ago, but five is the absolute lowest number that they could go to have the standard property that they want, and that's their that's their roof over their head number. So it's it's very it, it, it's a very um, wide um, it's a very elastic number depending on the person and their background. The way I try to explain it, and correct me if you don't agree, but it's like people have gotten into this. Everything, uh, the housing appreciation has become an entitlement for most of the country. They just think it's basically something that they're, they should just come to expect it, right? It's always going to happen. 
But the reality of it is that in a lot of markets in the country, that's not the case. And just like buying a car, you don't buy a car expecting it to be worth more, you know, a month, let alone five years from now. It's going to be worth a hell of a lot less. I'm not saying real estate's that bad. In some markets, it has been. Rob, I mean, for yeah, example, in your market, well, off the peaks, what have some of the houses depreciated by? And when was the peak in, in Greenwich? How long ago was it? Uh, probably oh, between 05 and 07. Right. And so houses are um, selling for about half of what they were selling then? It, it's, a, it's a very different story in different pockets of the town. So um, in, right. in, certain, in certain parts of the town where I've sold houses for flat on, that, on those type of numbers to a little bit more. Um, and then in the less, the less popular parts of town now, which are further away from the urban center of the town um, on bigger lots with, with very large houses, um, some of those properties have transacted for um, 50 cents on the dollar. So again, it's a, it's a very, so you've either been flat to slightly positive down to as much as 50% down. It depends on, it depends on the price point, the property and the, um, and the, and the location. If I were mean, I'd ask you another 10 questions and torture you because you want to go write that offer, but I'm not going to do it. So <laughs> if they want to, you can keep me on as long as you want to. You, if they want to, you're just being nice. If they want to get a hold of you to send you a referral um, and and you, you don't, you just tell them the areas that you work, tell them how they can get a hold of you. Um, and if you are so bold, you can give them your cell phone number so they can text you. So, um, I primarily, predominantly work just in the in the Greenwich area. If anyone, but if anyone has anyone relocating or moving to this area as a whole, um, they can feel free to. Um, my network is is great in the whole of the Northeast, and they, they, someone can happily pick my brains on different towns around me. Um, email um, is Rob Johnson R O B J O H N S O N at Halstead H A L S T E A D dot com. Um, and my cell is 203-979-2360. So I'm going to say it for him. Don't call him. Do not call him. Do not call him. Text him if you want to get a hold of him. He's too busy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you guys could hear it, but his phone was going crazy with things during this whole interview. That was Rob's phone, not mine, which means he's busy. It's all good. So, Rob, it's, listen. I re- it's, it's all yeah, good, and, and I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I, I, am, I, am, I do pride myself on being responsive. So, yeah, please text or email me, and I'll be happily, uh, happy to answer people's questions or um, do, you know, help, help the clients with any referrals, obviously. Thank you for the honor of being your coach. Please stay healthy. Love to your family. Podcast listeners, if you want to get hold of them now, you know how to. This is a, a window into your future. If you're interested in learning how to sell luxury and ultra-luxury real estate across the country, chances are it's going to be street by street, obviously, like he said, but you're going to start experiencing the need to have the skill set to show sellers how to have their houses positioned on the market correctly so they reflect this new market's expectations, which is different than just, as crazy as this is to say, three weeks ago. So pay attention, guys. The, someone has moved your cheese. Stay, stay focused. If you need us for anything, you can always text me directly at 512-758-0206. Thank you, Rob. Have a fantastic day. Thank you, Tim. You too. Take care. Bye. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time... Thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.